Exposing abuse and corruption can be a thankless job. Those doing wrong often deny and attack those exposing them, and their supporters often join suit, attacking the messenger rather than holding their leader accountable. So why continue reporting and advocating and shining a light? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and the question of why not quit is one of those questions I've asked myself repeatedly over the years. And I know it's not one that just journalists ask. Many abuse survivor advocates, whistleblowers, and allies do too. The work can be grueling, and the payoff at times can seem minimal. So why not quit? Why keep fighting Goliath when the odds continually seem stacked in our opponent's favor? What you're about to hear is a very personal talk I gave at the 2023 Restore Conference. The past 18 months have been especially hard for me, and there have been times when I've struggled profoundly with whether I can stay in this work without it deforming my soul. If you're a survivor or a whistleblower or an ally or maybe all of the above, you've probably experienced some of these same struggles. You may be struggling today. In this talk, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm still processing a lot of this stuff myself. But what I do is share my journey and why, despite the difficulties, which are many and real, I'm not quitting. You'll hear my talk in just a minute. But first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marcorda Barrington. If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, Judson University is for you. Judson is located on 90 acres just 40 miles west of Chicago in Elgin, Illinois. The school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Plus, you can take classes online as well as in person. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcord of Barrington. Marcord is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcord, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, here's the talk I gave at Restore 2023 on why not quit. Well, at the first Restore conference in 2019, I announced from this stage that we were experiencing an unmistakable move of God to purify his church. James McDonald had just been exposed as the bully and hypocrite that he was and removed from Harvest Bible Chapel. Bill Hybels was exposed as a sexual predator, and people were finally believing the women. And revelations about Jerry Falwell Jr. were just beginning to come out. And then donors alleging fraud won a massive $37 million settlement from Gospel for Asia. Clearly, God was cleaning house, right? And over the next few years, the revelations just kept coming. Jerry Falwell Jr. resigned from Liberty University amid shocking allegations of sexual and financial misconduct. Ravi Zacharias was shown to be a serial sexual predator, and RZIM was shut down. Hillsong began to implode, beginning with Carl Lentz and his sexual misconduct, going all the way to Brian Houston and his sexual misconduct. And then I reported probably the biggest investigation I've ever done. I reported on John MacArthur, the supposed 
greatest expositor of the 20th century, that he had a pattern of shaming, shaming abuse victims and protecting their abusers with story after story after story, the evil infecting the evangelical industrial complex was being exposed and rooted out. And probably more than any other time in my life, I felt like I was right in the middle of this remarkable thing that God was doing. Well, then I experienced the most virulent backlash I have ever experienced. An army of YouTubers loyal to John MacArthur just kept hitting. They couldn't go after the facts of my stories, so they went after me. And I became the poster child of the angry feminist, proponent of CRT, wokeism. It didn't matter whether I adhered to any of these things. They would publish it anyway. And John MacArthur, despite everything I'd reported on him, he didn't get canceled. He went and spoke at the Getty Singh conference, at the G3 conference, the Puritans conference. Sure. His reputation had been tarnished a bit, but those loyal dug in. Well, then some anonymous Twitter accounts loyal to John MacArthur found some objectionable content in a book that I wrote in 2017. And soon I wasn't just facing backlash from John MacArthur and those loyal to him, but from my own tribe and from the survivor community. And people were hurt and they were confused. And like I said yesterday, some of that criticism was valid and deserved, and I didn't get the power differential and someone, a relationship with somebody that had been in a ministry that I had led, and that was my own responsibility. And I had assigned fault where it didn't belong, where I should have taken responsibility. But some of the criticism was cruel, and it was patently false, and it was shockingly personal. And if you've never been in the midst of a public controversy like that, it's kind of hard to explain, um, but it is a unique kind of awful. At least when you're a private person and people talk about you, they have the decency to do it behind your back. But when you're a public person, they do it in front of your family and your children and your friends and thousands and thousands of other people. And it was traumatic for me. I know it was even traumatic for some of you. And then perhaps smelling blood in the water, protestia, a so-called discernment blog, lacking hardly any journalistic integrity, announced that they had a story that was going to expose me as a fraud. And on a Friday, they tweeted, we're blocked, but someone tag at Reach Julie Royce and give her a heads up that our next article about her revealing some of her shenanigans is really, really gonna sting. And then they published this video. Um, I said at the very, um at the very beginning that we have some more information um, coming out about Julie Roy's um, that I'm hoping to have uh, out to you by, by Monday. But suffice it to say, um, it's going to blow, um, blow up the facade of Julie Roy's as an ethical investigative journalist. Uh, we have some, some information about some, some, very unethical, I would say immoral, but certainly unethical um, things that Julie Royce has been caught uh, saying and doing and promoting that we're going to be um, we're, we're going to be releasing this information hopefully by Monday. So stay tuned to uh, protestia.com for that information 
Uh, I want to thank you all uh, again for joining me tonight on this live stream. So that came out on a Friday, so I had the whole weekend. <laughs> I'm on pins and needles the whole weekend. I'm like, what awful thing did I just do? I have no idea what I just did. So I'm waiting for this to come out. And on Monday, Protestia published this menacing tweet. Apparently, the story had been delayed a day, but will come out the next morning. Yet on Tuesday, instead of publishing their big expose on me, Protestia had to publish a retraction, saying they almost got conned by an abuse survivor. Of course, they got conned because they went forward with all of these allegations on Friday. Apparently, a woman had fabricated some emails that she said were from me. And in these emails, I allegedly said that she should go forward with 300 allegations against a well-known Christian figure, whether they were true or false. And sadly, Protestia didn't do the very basics. The number one thing that you do when someone's accused is you go to the accused and you ask for their side of the story. They didn't do that until Tuesday when they started to recognize some things might be going wrong. And they had accepted these fabricated emails as fact for about three days and went forward with those, again, libelous and slanderous allegations. The experience was unnerving, especially in the middle of what I was dealing with, but it wasn't the last hoax I faced either. Someone close to James McDonald came after me with wild allegations that I'd covered up a child sex abuse scandal at Harvest Bible Chapel when I was investigating it. Nothing could have been further from the truth, yet, some survivor advocates picked up that story as well, and they began tweeting and retweeting it. And I had to track down a story that was three years old and find the emails and the texts and go back to the primary sources and publish my own story showing that these allegations were false. And whatever momentum that I had going into all of this was completely eradicated. I was just trying to keep my head above water. Emotionally, I was spinning. It was so, so tough. And then people started talking about whether or not I was going to quit. In fact, I, I got a call from a colleague of mine. And it was actually the only journalist who called me in the midst of this. And he said, Julie, I am watching what's going on online. And he's like, are you all right? And it was really sweet, and I don't even know what I said. I was probably blubbering something. But it was a sweet call, but at the end of the call, he's like, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but if you do resign, can I have the interview? <laughs> I was a little taken aback, but, but then I got a call uh, from a former blogger who I got to know really well through an investigation, and he gave me permission to share uh, what I'm going to share with you, but he just asked that I call him by his first name, his first name's Scott. And so he said something very similar. He said, Julie, I'm watching what's happening to you on Twitter right now, and I just have to tell you as your friend, like, this is painful. He's like, you don't owe me an explanation. I know you. I know your character. But don't take this the wrong way. But have you thought about quitting? And he's like, I love you, and I care about you, and I've actually jotted down some reasons that I think you should consider. And would you be willing to just hear me out on this? And I love Scott. I respect Scott. And I knew the heart that he was saying this with, so I said, sure. Scott, go ahead. Tell me what you think. And he said, one, I noticed that you're taking all this friendly fire. See, usually my accusers are 
the defenders of whatever church leader it is that's caught in the crosshairs of some investigation. But now my accusers were my own tribe. It was people, some people, from the survivor community. And let me just preface what Scott said by saying, I have found that the survivor community and the people in this room, that some of you have been some of the most gracious people that I know. And the love that I was shown from some of you was so touching. And I have so much respect for survivors because survivors have been through hell and they've come out with this beauty, so many of you. And so it really was a small segment of the survivor community that was really being nasty. But he said, Julie, given the way that you've been treated by your own tribe, why would you keep reporting their stories? And I know some of you know what that feels like because you've tried to help with something and you've stepped out and you've messed up in some way. And the backlash and what happened to you when you did that made you feel like, I don't even want to do that again. Like, why try? And that's how I felt a little bit at that point. But then he said, secondly, maybe your work to expose abuse and corruption is done. And by this, he didn't mean there weren't any more abusers out there or any more corruption. What he was saying is that there's a pattern. In fact, there's so much of a pattern, you just see it playing out again and again and again. It's like Wade Mullen said in his book, something's not right. They're all using the same playbook. They all use the same tactics. He's like, have you thought that maybe, just maybe, those who have ears to hear have heard and the rest won't ever listen to it anyway. But lastly, and this is the one that really kind of hit home. And he said, Julie, do you ever wonder in what ways reporting on all of these vile things in the church and living in this constant pressure cooker is molding you and forming you into someone that you don't want to be? And then he quoted Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, whoever battles monsters should see to it in the process that he does not become a monster himself. And when you look long into the abyss, the abyss also looks back at you. And then Scott recalled ways that when he was blogging, that he started to see how this was affecting him negatively as part of the reason he stopped doing it. And he said, Julie, don't, don't take this as a confrontation. I'm not saying that I see this in you yet, but when I read some of the comments sometimes at your website, that's when I begin to see it. He's like, it's, it's like grace is disappearing. And friends, you know the verse and the passage in, in Corinthians. If I speak with the tongues of angels but have not love, I am nothing but a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Or in my situation, if I expose every predator pastor and defend every vulnerable victim but have not love, I am nothing. And I know, again, my experience is unique in some ways, but it's not. Also, some of you have been reporting, maybe not as a journalist, but in other ways have been trying to expose abuse and corruption in the church for far longer than I have. Some of you that have spoken at this conference have suffered far worse than I could even imagine for standing up for the truth. And you may not be journalists, although there's some in this room, but you're bloggers and podcasters and whistleblowers 
lawyers, pastors, allies, advocates. And you may today profoundly feel betrayed by those that you expected to support you. A sense of futility about the work that you're doing. And there are moments when you feel like your work or advocacy is molding you into someone that you don't want to be. And you may be wondering, is it worth it? Should I just get out of the trenches? Should I stop doing this and maybe just go to Colorado and hike mountains every day? I have wrestled with all these things profoundly. And I don't speak today as someone who has all the answers. I am in process like a lot of you. But I do feel like God has spoken to me with some resolution on some of these things, and I just want to share with you kind of what God's been saying to me in the hopes that it'll help you as you wrestle through some of these things as well. So let me talk about the first issue that Scott raised, and that's betrayal. I mean, why report or advocate or serve or pastor on people who may at any point turn on you? First, let me say, it goes both ways. I've been hurt by some survivor advocates, some of them innocently, some of them maliciously. But I've hurt some people in this room. I've had to ask forgiveness for some people in this room. And they've had to show me grace. And so in some ways, there's really nothing unique about this. If you're working with people, we're going to disappoint each other, right? We're going to let each other down. We're going to have to ask for forgiveness. We're going to have to extend grace. But this is, I think the question itself had an assumption in it. And that is that I'm doing what I'm doing for survivors. And I love survivors. I love you guys. And I consider myself now, after some of the stuff I've been through, one of them too. Absolutely love you guys. But this is what I told Scott, or at least what I was thinking at the time. I can't remember if I told him. But I'm not doing this for survivors. Maybe as a secondary reason, yes. But I don't think any of us can stay in the work that we're doing long term if we're primarily doing it for people. Because when you're doing it for people, your eyes are always on the worthiness of a person. And we're pretty darn fallible. In the long term, if that's what we do, we're going to end up very bitter and angry and burned out. The primary reason I'm doing what I'm doing, and I would suggest that all of us should be doing whatever work it is, is an, an act of worship to God. We're serving God. And you've probably heard the story of Mother Teresa, where she was with a journalist in Calcutta. And he saw her cleaning out this infected wound that was just maggot infested. And he said, I wouldn't do what you're doing for a million dollars. And she shot right back, I wouldn't either. She got that when she served the person on the street, she was serving Jesus. And so whenever we're serving, whatever capacity it is, we are serving Jesus. I would also say that I do believe God called me to this work. I never would have imagined five years ago that I would be doing what I'm doing today. It was the furthest thing from my imagination. And I bet for some of you in this room, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you never would have imagined you would be here either. 
And you never would have imagined the set of circumstances that put you in this room right now. And I'm guessing that if you look back over the five, 10, 15, however many years it's been, if you look carefully, you can see the hand of God in your life, putting you where you are right now. It is not the road you would have chosen, but it's the road that God worked redemptively in. Five years ago, I was a radio host on the Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio Network. I had just written a book. I was getting booked at these women's conferences, ironically one at Harvest Bible Chapel. Um, I was getting booked on all these radio programs. I was on my way to becoming, God forbid, a Christian celebrity. But then I learned about corruption and abuse at the Moody Bible Institute. And I was the one person who not only had the inside information, but I also had the training and the skills to know what to do with that to expose it. And so it didn't take too long before it became a matter of conscience where I felt like if I didn't say something, that I would be disobeying God. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've sat in that situation before where you've known that to stay quiet is to disobey God. But you have absolutely no guarantee that if you speak out, that it's going to go well for you. In fact, you're pretty darn sure that if you do speak out, it's going to go a lot worse. And that's what happened for me. I got fired from the Moody Bible Institute. Ironically, they also pressured the top three executives to resign that I had reported on. But I had broken the silent rule which is, you never speak about these things publicly. I was actually told by a board member on the phone that the reason they fired me is because the interim president told them that I had signed an NDA. <laughs> and I will never forget the shock in his voice when I told him that several years before, when they had moved me from full-time to part-time, that they had given me an NDA, and I fought it with everything I was worth, there was absolutely no way that as a journalist, I would sign something that resigns me to silence. Absolutely no way. And he immediately said, oh, I got to go, and hung up. <laughs> and despite the fact that they had absolutely no grounds for firing me, I was completely blacklisted in the evangelical industrial complex. And many of you know what that is like, too. I knew it would happen. This wasn't, I had been in it for about 10 years, so I knew how the game worked. And I thought when I got fired, this would be a great thing. I'll have more time with my kids and now my grandkids. But then survivors from Harvest Bible Chapel came to me begging me to hear their stories and do what I had done at Moody for Harvest. And then survivors from Mark Driscoll's church came and said, would you please listen to us and report on what's happening here? And then Steve Boffman gave me a copy of his book, Cover Up in the Kingdom, and he said, Julie, I've been reporting for years about how Ravi Zacharias is a fraud, but nobody will listen to me because I'm an atheist, but they'll listen to you because you're one of them. Yeah. And God brought me story after story after story and every single time, I didn't hear like the audible voice of God, but I felt very much that he was saying, keep reporting. And so that's what I've tried to do. And ironically, God took the one thing that I thought would end my career 
blowing the whistle on the Moody Bible Institute, and he used it to launch the Roy's Report. And he used hurting people that I got to know in my reporting on Harvest and Willow Creek to start this conference. And I just see his hand working redemptively in all things. And I bet some of you, like I said, if you looked back over your life, and even this chapter, you might be able to see God's hand working redemptively. Maybe not yet. Some of you I know because I've talked to you, and it's like you're hanging by a thread right now, and you can't even believe that the things that have happened to you at the hand of people you loved and you trusted and you thought were members of the kingdom and you were all working on the same team did you what they did. And I would just encourage you for whatever mustard seed of faith that you have, hang on to Jesus. Just hang on. Because I also know that there's others of you today that you never would have believed. You never would have believed 10 years ago that you would be where you are today. You never would have believed you would be able to heal. You never would have believed with what you went through that you would have the confidence and the courage that you have today, that you would be as healed as you are. And I just want to remind you that's not just because you're amazing. A lot of you are amazing, and you're an incredible inspiration to me, and you have been through far more than I ever will go through and ever dream of going through. But I would just encourage you to see the way that God has been working in your life, doing what he said he would do, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. I don't think it's trite that what God did in the Old Testament with Joseph, that he still does today. That he takes the evil that was done against us and he works it for good. And if he's calling you to a certain work, I would just encourage you to do it with all your might as unto the Lord. And I'm not going to quit because of the pushback. I think it comes with the territory. In fact, I had an editor once that said, Julie, if you're not getting any hate mail, then you're probably just not saying anything. But what about the second reason that Scott mentioned? The seeming futility of fighting this evil that seems to have worked itself through the entire dough of evangelicalism and within the church, and you seem to be fighting this giant that is so incredibly massive, and all the people with power are propping it up, and quite frankly, we don't have very much. In fact, in comparison, we're just gnats. We're like so small. You know, last night we heard from Jason and Lori Adams-Brown and if you know their story, you know that they blew the whistle on Andy Wood, who had been at Echo Church, because of the spiritual abuse that they received at his hands. Despite the fact that they blew the whistle on him, and I had the privilege of reporting their story, Saddleback Church went ahead and hired him, and he is now the successor for Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. But it was so encouraging to hear from them how their courage and their speaking out caused other people who had been similarly abused by some of the same people to come to them and talk to them about the abuse. 
and for them to say how they got their voice back, because that's what abusers do. They take away your voice. And to reclaim your voice is a very important thing. It is empowering. And then they talked about how another story that came to me because I published that first story was stories about how Andy Wood and Echo Church had stolen these vulnerable congregations that own these multi-million dollar buildings and had tried to steal those buildings. And a, and a major Baptist leader went on the record with me talking about his experience of Andy Wood trying to steal numerous churches. And that never would have come out had they not spoken. I also recently produced a podcast with Emily Highland, who's at this conference. And Emily was a victim of abuse by Dane Ortland, who's a pastor in this area. And Emily told me that after we published the podcast, now she's beginning to hear from other people who have similarly, similarly been abused by Dane Ortland, and now they're beginning to get their voice, and they're thinking of going on the record. And just a little bit ago, I published a story about church home. This is this West Coast church, pastored by a celebrity pastor, Judah Smith. And the first piece that I did on church home was about this woman who had been raped by one of their pastors. And they even did an independent investigation and found out that there was credible evidence, in fact, beyond a reasonable doubt, that her allegation was true. So they pressured him, and he resigned from the church, and three years later, they hired him back over her objections. And literally the same day, I started getting emails and texts and different things from women who had similarly been abused at that church and wanted to go forward with their story. And I was able to do a three-part series on what Church Home had done. And right now, I can't tell you what the story is because I haven't published it yet, but I have a big one. And it's due to another person at Church Home seeing what we just reported. And now that person came forward and gave me a bunch of information. And that's how it happens every single time, with story after story after story. It's like this little fire starts here, and then it spreads here, and then here, and here, and soon the whole hillside is ablaze. And friends, that's how movements happen. That's how they grow. But it takes time, and it takes perseverance. At the first restore, I said that this unmistakable move of God, that it was not a sprint, it's a marathon. Now. At that point, I thought we were on like mile nine or 10. <laughs> the more I've done this, now I'm thinking we're on four or five, we may be on two or three. And I hate to break that news to you, but I, I really do. People have compared this current state of the church to the Catholic Church before the Reformation. I actually think that's a fair comparison. It is that corrupt, it is that widespread. Do you know how long the Reformation took? Historians date it from 1517 to 1648. Friends, that is 131 years. How about slavery? Let's just look at England. It took William Wilberforce fighting passionately, so much so that his own health suffered greatly for two decades to abolish slavery in England. Because friends, that's how institutionalized evil, and that is what we are dealing with, institutionalized evil, 
That's how it's dismantled. So do I get discouraged? 100%. I'm human. Are there days when it's hard to persevere? Hmm. But I believe the corruption in the church is the most serious threat to this country. And most Christians don't even know it. That's the shocking thing. Most Christians aren't even aware of it. And you say, well, how can I say that? How many times have we heard, the hope of the world is Jesus, and his means of rescuing the world is? Thank you, the church. And we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be a light on the hill, and we are Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, what are most all the Christian leaders doing right now? What are they talking about? They're talking about all the sin out there, right? They're talking about everything that's bad out there in the world. Like they have a moral platform to stand on. And they're not talking about the sin in their own house. None of them. And unless we deal with the sin in our own house, there's no way, there is no way that we're going to reform this country. And it certainly isn't by electing some politician. But I would encourage you, and this is what I see happen a lot, is that people get really excited about a story that touches them personally. And thank God, because every time I report a new story, there are people who are totally unaware that this is going on, and they become aware. But then what happens is they move on with their life. And I'm not saying you shouldn't move on with your life. Dear Lord, if all of us lived in, I've got a weird call. I get that. I've got a weird personality, too. I make mugs. Actually, I have people make them for me, but the biggest insults I get, I actually enjoy that at times. I'm just kind of weird that way. But I'm just, there is a, an element to which we can't all live in that intensity, and I get that. But what I'm saying is, don't just move on and forget there's other people stuck. Don't just move on. Keep your love for the church and for the mission and for the restoration of this thing that Jesus died for and that he loves. And don't forget that if not, if not you, who? So am I going to quit because the progress is slow and hard? No. I'm going to keep in mind one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But now I'm going to address the most concerning issue that Scott raised. And that is what is in the process of fighting the monster, you become the monster. Last year, Christian therapist and trauma expert, Dr. Diane Langberg, said from this stage, that the way that you recognize a wolf is you don't become one. And some people took offense at that because they said, listen, we're not all going to become pedophiles. We're not all rapists. We're not like on that level. And they're right. It takes a certain level of pathology to do something like that. And most people, quite frankly, aren't there, thank God. 
That said, that's not what Diane was saying. What Diane was saying is that every single one of us, every single one of us has a sin nature, and if we don't keep that in check, we can succumb to a lot of the same things as the people I report on. I would be lying if I said that I didn't have some of the vices of the people I report on, because I do. I struggle with anger, bitterness, contempt, self-pity, that's a big one, pride. And the more I uncover and the more that I see innocent people abused by these people, the more difficult it becomes to deal with some of those vices. It can become a death spiral, and the spiritual death that we see in other people can become our spiritual death. Dr. Langberg writes about this in her devotional book called In Our Lives First. And this is a book that I've read twice devotionally over the past 18 months. I'll probably read it again over the next year because this is something that I constantly need to be reminded of. And she writes, those of us who work with such deaths must be extremely careful not to catch the diseases that surround us. We must be careful not to assume that catching such diseases is hard to do. Working with sin, suffering, and evil can easily numb the heart. Numbness leads to death if left alone. She also writes of counselors, though this is true of investigative reporters, it's true of pastors, it's true of survivor advocates, many others. We are handling toxic things, and we have toxins in our own hearts, and it is not hard to either be destroyed by the work or to destroy those who come to us for help. So what do we do? Do we quit working in the trenches? Lorianne suggested that some people should quit. I'm not going to argue with Lorianne. <laughs> Maybe I'd tweak it a little bit. Let me just speak to those of you who, like me, grew up in a home where personal responsibility and duty was a big thing. Any of the, you in? Okay. And so sometimes, those of us who grew up in these homes, we tend to do things because we feel like we have to, and we have a sense of responsibility and duty, and we can be destroying ourselves and destroying the relationships of those we love the most, yet we keep doing it because we think we have to. Am I right? Can I get an amen? All right. I don't think God is honored when we destroy ourselves. And I tell you what, he's certainly not honored when eventually that turns into harm for others, because eventually that's what happens. So if that's you and that's happening, you know, maybe you don't need to have a frontline role. Maybe you can just step back for a season. Maybe you can su support some people that are out there. You know, maybe you can adjust your role, or maybe you do take a little bit of a break, or maybe you do go to Colorado for three weeks and hike mountains. But is there a way? Is there a way to remain in work that exposes us to the vilest, the vilest things that happen in this world, yet instead of destroying us, it actually aids in our own sanctification? Sanctification, just a theological word for the process of becoming like Jesus. 
I grew up in the holiness movement. You may not know what that means. That's okay. But in the holiness movement, we talked a lot about sanctification. And we talked a lot about a second work of the Holy Spirit, kind of like charismatics talk about a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Except the manifestation within the holiness movement isn't tongues. The manifestation is power over sin in your life. And we weren't against tongues. Speak in tongues, absolutely. Just like Paul said, I wish you all were like me. Just if it doesn't lead to your sanctification, what good is it? That's the point is that we become like Jesus, right? Diane Langberg writes a lot about sanctification. She doesn't urge counselors to quit their work. Instead, she implores them to pursue Jesus. She writes, we have not heard God clearly if we fail to understand that one of the requirements for our work is that God's sanctifying work must go on continually in us as well. If it does not, while we may appear for a time to be doing his work, eventually what is true will be made manifest. That we have not, for the sake of others, bent to the sanctification process ourselves. We will damage his world, his people, and his name. May it never be so. One of the great tragedies of the epidemic of abuse and corruption in the evangelical church is that it is pushing people away from Jesus. And many, because of the hurt that they've experienced, are beginning to deconstruct their faith. And I'm not dissing deconstruction. Many of us need to go back and reevaluate a lot of the beliefs that we took in and begin to think about those. And we need a safe place to do that in. We need people who are safe people to do that with. We need safe people. We need to be safe people. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that what I have been exposed to hasn't caused me to doubt my faith. In fact, the hardest question for me has been, does Christianity, does it make people worse or does it make people better? Because I've seen some really devout Christians who have incredible grip of scripture, incredible grip of theology, much better than I do. And yet they are some of the most wicked people I have ever known in my life. And I tell you what I've become convinced of. I've concluded that Christianity, divorced from a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and reduced to a theological system, a moralistic system, or God forbid, a political one, is absolutely heinous. And it does make people into monsters. But I believe a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ is not only helpful in helping us deal with the vilest thing of this world, it is 100% essential. I know my relationship with Jesus has sustained me over the past 18 months. I remember several weeks before last year's Restore Conference, and I was a mess, and Dr. Diane Langberg got on a Zoom call with me for about 90 minutes. And she was so loving and so gracious, which I'm sure is not hard for you to imagine. And she was Jesus to me. 
And I remember saying to her, Diane, the hardest part about this whole thing to me is that I've been accused of these awful things and I can't say anything. I remember having a very close friend who said, Julie, if you, if you step down from that conference, everybody's going to assume that everything that was said about you is true. And Diane said to me, she said, Julie, this is an opportunity for you to enter into Christ's sufferings. And initially, I thought about that very much in a martyr sort of way. Because if you've been wronged in some way, it's really, really easy to get a martyr complex. Super easy. But it hasn't been like that. So I had a very profound experience with a spiritual coach, mentor, about, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, where we were just doing some breathing exercises because I was kind of worked up. It's hard to imagine, I know. And while we're in the, the process of this, she said, just experience the Lord's compassion. And that morning I had read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I began imagining being in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. I have a pretty vivid imagination. So I'm there and I'm, I'm looking at his face and I'm, I see just, just incredible pain on his face. And it strikes me, he's just been betrayed by one of his 12 closest companions. And one of his three closest friends is going to deny him three times. And I had felt betrayed by people who are, frankly, kind of strangers. I don't really even know any, most of them. And then Jesus is literally sweating beads of blood. I had gone through some emotional trauma. I've never done that. And then Jesus is thinking about this is the night before he's going on the cross. I began thinking of this. He's going to be tortured to death the next day. I have never in my life been tortured for my faith. I read Miriam's book, and I was devastated. What that woman has gone through, and she has overcome, I am in awe of her. But Jesus suffered. The immensity of his suffering began to hit me, and I, in that moment, finally didn't feel sorry for myself. And somehow in that whole process, I felt more unified with Jesus than I'd ever felt before. And there was this oneness. And somehow, now what I'd gone through had meaning, and that made all the difference in the world. I've also been thinking about the fact that Jesus died for his enemies. I have enemies now. I don't think I had enemies before I started reporting. Like, I had people who didn't like me, but enemies. I mean, somebody really bent on your destruction, like, that actually schemes about it. I have those now. Some of you have those now. I'm having a tough enough time forgiving them. Dying for them? Man. And here's where it gets tough, because Jesus says we're supposed to have the same attitude that he had. I was challenged by a friend several years ago to just read through the Old Testament and read about every single time that a prophet brings a word of judgment to people. It took me several months, but I went ahead and did it, and something dawned on me. Every time that God gave a prophet a harsh word to say to his people, 
It was never because he wanted to destroy them. It was always because he desired them to repent so that he could give them mercy. We see this in the story of Jonah, right? You all know the story. Jonah's told to go to the Ninevites. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrians. Bloodthirsty, hostile people, the enemies of the Israelites. So what does he do? He goes to Tarshish, gets on a, a ship, and they, they go out to the Mediterranean. Their big storm comes. They throw him overboard. Fish swallows him. He's in the fish three days. Vomited up on dry land. Then he says, okay, fine, I'll go to Nineveh. Goes to Nineveh for three days. He tells the Ninevites, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. And then the Ninevites do a most remarkable thing. They actually repent. And God has mercy on them. But Jonah, what does he do? He becomes despondent. He says to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, or no, O Lord, please take my life for me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah had become every bit as hard-hearted as the people that he hated. And if that can happen to a prophet of God, it can happen to me. It can happen to any one of us. So this is kind of a heart check for us. It was a heart check for me. I, I began to think about this. Like, what if John MacArthur repented? It's hard to imagine. The man's never apologized that I know of. That's what I'm told from everybody near him. But let's imagine he did. What if John MacArthur went to Eileen Gray and he said, Eileen, I am so sorry. When your husband tried to suffocate your daughter and the abuse was so brutal in your home that you came to the church, you came to us for help. And instead of helping you, we told you to drop that protective order that you had gotten against him to protect not you, but your children. And in front of the entire church, I, the shepherd, shamed and excommunicated you simply for trying to protect your children. And years later, years later, when it came out that he had sexually abused your children and was convicted by a court, and you know how hard it is to be convicted in California of child abuse? And they sent him to prison? I still maligned you, and I protected your abuser. Oh, Eileen, I am so sorry. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against my church. Will you forgive me? Or what if he went to Wendy Gway and said, Wendy, when you came to me, or when your father came to me when you were just a teenager and he confessed to my face that he had sexually molested you? And I kept him on staff another three years and I wrote you that handwritten note telling you to forgive your father? That was wrong. That was a sin against you. And years later, decades later, when that action of mine had devastated your life, and you simply came to me because you wanted support, going to the elders of the church where your father was still pastoring. And at this point, you knew that he was a serial abuser. He was abusing many people because that's what pedophiles do. 
instead of coming with you, instead of supporting you, instead of repenting for what I did. I said in an email to you, why has this become such an obsession for you? That devastated you. It was my fault. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me for that? Do I want John MacArthur to receive grace? Do I want him to repent, or would I rather him see his maker and try and make that excuse to him? Honestly, it's a little bit of a struggle. <laughs> but I thought about that. Imagine if John MacArthur repented. I mean really repented. Can you imagine the ripple effect that would have? How many pastors that would affect in this church? Can you imagine what that would do? Unbelievable what would happen if John MacArthur repented. Would I rejoice at that? You bet I'd rejoice at that. That could be the start of revival in this church. That's what we need to see, is pastors repenting. But I tell you what, that is not natural for me. I tell you what's natural for me. When somebody hurts me, I want them to hurt in the same way that they hurt me. Can I get a name? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's human nature, isn't it? The only reason that I have any grace in my heart is because of Jesus Christ. Because I wouldn't have it without him. And without him, I would become a monster. I am convinced of it. And that's why, one of many reasons why I need Jesus. But now I'm going to say something a little bit controversial. I've also found that I need Christian community. And I know some of you have been so burned by your Christian community, and I don't blame you for not wanting to darken the doors of a church. Three and a half years ago, we lost a church, or we left a church, that I thought we would be in the rest of our lives. I thought it was different. I loved that church, dearly. I loved the people in it. But the last draw for us was when they covered up sex abuse. And at that point, we just couldn't trust leadership anymore. And for two years, we went from church to church to church to church, and it was unbelievably depressing. And I won't go into all the reasons it was depressing. I think you all know. But two weeks before everything blew up in my life, when this whole controversy hit last year, two weeks before that, a professional colleague invited me to his house church. And here's what's kind of ironic. That professional colleague happened to be the CEO of Christianity Today. Now, if you know anything about my past, which you may not, I have not had a great relationship with Christianity Today. That CEO, though, has since publicly apologized for some of the stuff that CT did to me under his predecessor. But two weeks before this happened, I was like, great, yeah, I'll try anything at this point. So my husband and I went to the church, the house church. It was great. We loved it. I was like, this is really super. Between week one and week two, everything in my world blew up, and I had to resign from the conference. And I remember walking into that house church with people I knew two weeks. 
And I wasn't really planning on sharing this, but somebody noticed something I had said, and then when we were in small groups, they said something, and I just, and I'm bawling in front of people. I don't even know, hardly. But over the past 18 months, that's become my Christian community. And I was invited into a women's cohort, and that became a support for me. And the leader of the women's cohort said, Julie, do you have a prayer team? And I said, well, I used to have a prayer team, but it's kind of fizzled. I don't honestly even have the strength to put one together. And she says, I'll do it for you. And so once a month, we have this really sweet prayer time with this small group of people, and they've been some of the best times for me. And I honestly shudder to think of where I would be right now if for the past 18 months I had done that in isolation. And so I'm so grateful for Christians in my life who have been the hands and the feet of Jesus to me and who have loved me. And I don't know, I can't speak to your situation. I know some of you feel like you're in a wasteland and I know you feel like all the churches in your area are bad and I don't, I'm not even going to argue with you. I would just encourage you to not give up. To not give up. And to keep hoping, keep pressing into Jesus, keep looking for Christian community. And I don't know how God will meet that in your life, but I just trust he will because that's just God's nature. And I don't know how long the wasteland will be, but it won't last forever. So we're going to close this conference the way we've closed every single Restore conference, and that's with communion. And Paul Lundquist, who is a local pastor who has been a dear friend of this ministry and so supportive of what we're doing, is going to come and lead us in communion where we celebrate not just our oneness with Christ, but our oneness together as his body. So Paul, would you come? Well, I hope you've been encouraged by what you just heard. And I wish you could have been there to experience communion together with those dear and beautiful souls at the Restore Conference. That is a memory I will not soon forget. And I hope you'll make it a point to join us at the next Restore Conference, which we'll be announcing soon. Also, I want to mention that the videos of these talks are all available at my YouTube channel. And we're not charging anything for those. We just really want as many people as possible to benefit from these Restore Conference talks. But friends, I'm sure you're aware that producing these podcasts and videos is not cheap. So if you appreciate this content and you're able to help, would you please consider donating to The Roy's Report? Especially as you're considering your end of the year donations, please remember us and the work that we do. We're running a bit in the red this year, so your gifts are especially critical so we can continue podcasting and reporting at the same level. To donate, just go to julieroys.com slash donate. That's julieroys.com slash donate. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. That way, you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then, please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you are blessed and encouraged.